Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, I think we can both agree that one of the more troubling things to shamble out of the 1970s mm-hmm. was the possible humanity, Oliver. Oh, yeah. That, very, very sad case of a chimpanzee. Sweet animal. Very sweet, uh, cigar-smoking, upright-walking, bald, bald-ish uh, chimp that people thought was very, is like eerily human-like. Uh-huh. And, th- and some people even thought that he might have been the missing link. Between humans and uh, great apes and chimpanzees. Yes, and we, we yeah. hear about the, the missing link mm-hmm. all the time. And, and in the 1970s before genetic testing, the people were just so unner- unnerved by this this uh, little creature, Oliver, that they thought for sure that there wasn't some part of him that was human. And they they saw it in his face, right? Uh, they they saw it in the way that he appeared to, to walk around on on two feet, right? Right. And and supposedly the smell as well. There are some accounts that say that he didn't smell like a chimpanzee should. That he smelled like a a little bit like a man and a little bit like a chimp. Yeah. Well, here okay. Here's the context. 1970s. Uh, some a couple raises chimpanzees uses them for entertainment purposes, mm-hmm. meaning you know in commercials or parties or whatever. They they get this one peculiar chimpanzee Oliver. Uh-huh. Turns out that nobody really wants to use him in commercials because he is really unsettling because he looks very human and because he keeps walking upright like consistently. You see, chimps do this sometimes, but this particular chimpanzee was you know even though his hips were splayed out, mm-hmm. he would still walk upright. People were like, that's kind of weird. Um, and so they began to, to anecdotally say things like, oh, well, you know, the other chimps don't like Oliver because he must have a, a bad smell or they don't recognize his smell. So we don't know for sure exactly what the deal was with Oliver. But but they, they felt weird about using him. They didn't think he looked like uh, like star chimp material. And, and maybe, just maybe, they... They found that he looked at he was a little too human. That's that, the problem. That yeah. uh, that it felt really weird to take this this sort of human looking uh, animal uh, and uh, put it in a cage, take it out of the cage, make yeah. it run around for a commercial, and then uh, reward it with a, a carrot and a cigar. Well, especially well, as I say, especially if it sits down next to you and starts smoking a cigar, and maybe even making a pass at you, because apparently this is something that he would do when he turned 16 and his hormones were raging, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, but he, in fact, was not a humanzy. As much as people wanted to believe or thought uh, that he was, later on they did genetic testing on him and they found that he was, you know, 100% chimp. That doesn't mean that people uh, still aren't fascinated by the idea that you could create half-man, half-ape. Right. It's it's I mean it's a it is a troubling idea as we uh, as, as the title of this podcast suggests, you know. It's uh it's it's the the idea that there is this bridge between us and the animal. It blurs the line between what it is to be human and what it is to be this this other. And of course this is something that uh, we've explored in uh, horror and science fiction many times in the past, uh, especially uh, at the uh, the end of the uh, the 1800s, beginning of the uh, 20th century, you saw a, a number of very uh, important stories that came around that, uh, that really signified this. I mean, one as early as 1841, you had uh, The Murders in the Rue Morgue mm-hmm. by uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which, um, you know, spoilers, it, it involves an orangutan with a straight razor stuffing girls into chimneys. And the idea that this, this ape is, is going around committing crimes against humans, so, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's pretty troubling. Uh, but, uh, but then it really kicks in a little later. Uh, of course, you have uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, um, 
classic novel, 1896. Stinky movie. Classic novel, stinky movie. Which movie are you referring to? Uh, Marlon Brando. Ah, yes, the 96 version, Mm -hmm. which you still have to admit is pretty fun because you have have Marlon Brando (laughs) and that whole get-up apparently acting with a headset. Like, barely acting, like reading lines uh, that are uh, fed He's to him. out of his gourd. Right. And then he has the little, uh, the whole idea of the mini-me originates with the uh, with the little person that he had uh, dressed up like him. Yeah. Um, it is unsettling. Yeah. And then you had Ron Perlman running around as an, in an animal costume. Oh, you had, uh, yeah, there I forgot about that. Val Kilmer doing God knows what. And uh, it was kind of a disaster. But there was also a 1977 film version that had Burt Lancaster and Michael York. And that one was always a favorite of mine because it was, um, uh, like when I was a kid, I would watch like, uh, like Grandpa Munster would host this like Saturday <laughs> morning, afternoon, uh, you know, he, he was a daytime horror TV host. And, and he would host these awful movies that, that I would watch. And this was before Mystery Science Theater 3000. So, was, but, but I would, I would, uh, I would always check it out. And, and they would, you know, show stuff like them with the giant ants. And, and I particularly remember being really into that 77 version of Dr. Moreau. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. I have, I need to check that out. So, yeah, I mean, in case you guys haven't guessed out there, we're talking about humanities and we're going to talk a little bit more later about what we have already done in the lab in terms of creating uh, hybrid creatures of ourselves and other animals. But first, we should probably talk about chimeras, right? Yes, the chimera. For you uh, Greek mythology junkies, this was, of course, a, a monster with a lion's head, a goat's body, a dragon's tail. It breathes fire. It was born in uh, Lycia on the southern coast of mo- what's now modern Turkey. Uh, and it would sweep down in the evenings, and it would carry off women, children, and livestock. It would litter their bones all over right. the mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, what, what are you going to do? you got to get a hero to take care of this uh, this monster that's made from different animal parts. So you bring in Bellerophon, and, uh, of course, he can't really just walk up there and take care of it. A, he needs a spear, and yeah. B, he needs a pegasus. So I, I find it amusing that um, that he defeats a chimera mainly by using a chimera because the uh, today the, the word chimera uh, is often used to refer to any animal that has two or more different sets of genetically distinct cells working together. Okay, and so again, uh, this will bring me back to movies and Clash of the Titans, right? <laughs> yes, every, okay. everyone's uh, modern understanding of mythology, uh, of course, based in Clash of the Titans. Of course, yeah. right? But of course, we actually do have hybrids uh, in nature, not necessarily like Medusa-like creatures or um, otherwise. They're generally not quite that fabulous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, minotaurs, sirens on the banks calling you forth. But we've got dogs and wolves, not that exciting, but they have made it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, lions and tigers, ligers, ligers yeah. uh, a mule, which is the progeny of a male donkey and a female horse. Yeah, you get the um, all the, the value of a donkey, but the size of a horse. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously we've seen interspecies love happenings and mm-hmm. their products of their love happenings. I don't know why I'm choosing to say it that way, but this is what happens, right? Well, yeah, they're related... Um, enough that they can actually breed with one another and produce these uh, offspring that uh, most of these cases, though, cannot then breed with uh, with other animals. Right. The mule, for instance, is, uh, is, is generally sterile. Yes. Yeah. And then we have cross-species in the lab, right? Man-made. Yes. Three different types here that you'll see. One is called the hybrid, and this is uh, created by breeding across species, and hybrids are generally the result of combining an egg from one species with sperm from another to form a single embryo. Mm-hmm. And hybrids contain recombined genetic material throughout their genome and throughout all the tissues in their body. Okay, so that's important to note. And then there's transgenics. That's the result of gene transfer, and typically transgenics 
contains transferred or manipulated genes in addition to the host, nuclear, and mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, one exception may be a transgenic embryo comprised of the entire complement of nuclear DNA from one organism, organism fused with an, an inoculated egg cell from another. And this will become all sort of crystal clear when we talk more specifically about what's being created here. And then third, chimeras, right? Right. And there are a number of cool lab-grown examples of this. Uh, Chinese researchers at the Shanghai uh, Second Medical University successfully fused human cells with rabbit eggs. A year later, there was a successful Chinese uh, chimera experiment where researchers at, researchers at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota announced that they created a, um, a pig with human blood pumping through its veins. Mm-hmm. We made a sheep with human livers, a mouse with a human liver, a stapler with a human liver. A ca- <laughs> not really, a stapler. A cow egg with sure human you're, cells. Uh, listening there. Yeah. Uh, cat-human hybrid proteins, mouse with a human brain, mm-hmm. uh, well, with human, with 1% of its brain was uh, human brain cells. So before anyone gets any crazy uh, secret in them ideas there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a technology that's it's been around uh, the block a few times already. And these are all, I should point, that people are not just making, like, sheep with human livers just, just because they fun. think it's awesome or they want a sheep that can really hold its liquor. Mm-hmm. This is about uh, figuring out ways to potentially grow uh, new organs for organ transplants for humans to better understand some of mm-hmm. these systems. I mean, they're, they're definite medical uh, goals in mind here. Or trying to understand life-threatening diseases. Exactly, yeah. Um, in 2007, British researchers created a human-pig hybrid. So this is where the egg comes from a pig and the nucleus comes from a human. And the idea is to implant the nucleus of an egg from a human being with a disease, um, so something like heart disease, and then you can watch how the DNA from a person with this condition instructs cell- cellular development in its earliest stages. And so scientists really hope to find out more about the inner workings, about what's going on there, um, specifically with heart disease. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's all these different examples of um, how we have tinkered with nature in order to observe our maladies or even just how we have progressed as human beings. So all of this leads uh, inevitably to the tale of a Russian biologist by the name of Ilya Ivanov, who uh, was doing most of his work in the 1920s and uh, really wasn't all that heard about by the modern public until around uh, 1990. And that's when a number of Soviet documents became unclassified. The British tabloid The Sun got a hold of some of this, and they started running stories about the Red Frankenstein, who was uh, supposedly had traveled to French Guiana on a boat. Bolshevik-sponsored quest to breed a human-ape hybrid to create uh, a, some sort of super mutant to uh, aid Stalin in his uh, conquest of the world. Yeah, right. This was the uh, Red Ape Man army that they yeah. talked about, um, which, you know, it's probably um, good to note that uh, Ivanov was working way before the Russian Revolution began, and there are certain aspects of this story that you can see that might have been taken out of context and uh, and there's a great fun idea to run with uh, this half-man, half-ape army that Stalin mm-hmm. wanted to uh, defeat the world with. But that is not, in fact, what happened, right? That's not exactly what Ivanov was after. Yeah, they, at the uh, dawn of the 20th century, Ivanov was already a, a pretty famous dude in his field for his pioneering work in artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. Well-respected. Yeah, well-respected. He had done things like he created a Z-donk, which was a zebra-donkey hybrid, a Zubron, which was a European bison-cow crossover, uh, you know, he was uh, he was creating mashups with animals, like so, and kind of, you know, islanded Dr. Moreau-ish, I guess, if you want to really yeah, yeah. Uh, take it and run with it. But uh, but he was well thought of, and he, his next big thing was he wanted to uh, see about improving the bloodstock of Imperial uh, Russia. 
So um, around 1924, he puts in proposals with the government. Despite the disapproval of the uh, scientific establishment, Mm -hmm. he got the go-ahead and the funds, most importantly, to mount an expedition to Africa to collect apes so that he could see about creating a hybrid between a human and its closest relative. That's right. And he he was getting his funds from the Soviet Academy of Sciences Mm -hmm. in part. And, uh, And there was a lot of crossover at the time. So he was working with a lot of people who were really respected in their fields. Of course, you know... The problem was is that uh, it's a little bit diabolical, right? I mean, his his idea here. Yeah, his as best we can tell, his his real idea, his his notion here was not to create a super soldier or anything stupid like no. that. But he was a big believer in the, the theories of, of Darwin that uh, the idea that man evolved uh, from these uh, previous forms, mm-hmm. that uh, that evolution was the driving force, natural selection was the driving, which force. is all great, right? right? Yeah, but he he thought that the way to really prove it. To just really just settle the case once and for all on the whole evolution versus everything else versus religion, you name it, was to actually create a human-chimp hybrid mm-hmm. and then introduce it to the world. And then people would say, he would be like, what? What's that? You got something uh, so, there's something about religion? Meet my humanity. His name is uh, Oliver. and uh, Proof. Yeah, your entire argument is nil at this point. So... So he had, you could say he had a noble, um, you know, scientific goal in mind. If mm-hmm. kind of a, I mean, still kind of a heelish move. He's kind of he wants to stick it to, to everyone, but it's still he, he has a, a definite goal in mind here. His his means of pulling it off are just a little suspect. Well, yes, yeah, in the execution, right? So he decides that um, he's going to try to inseminate three females, right? Which mm-hmm. he does. Um, he tries, I should say, and these are African women. And uh, but then, you know, eventually he's forced to abandon the project because it's just not going that well. It doesn't have a ton of support behind it, right? And he has really had to try to get those ten thousand dollars from the um, Soviet Financial Commission. He's really had to work very hard at it. This is not something that a lot of people want to Right. Find. And it was kind of touch and go. Like, he went to Paris first, and then he went to French Guiana because they had some chimps over there. Mm-hmm. But then they weren't yet old enough to breed, so he had to come back to Paris. Nothing was working in his favor. Right, yeah. And he gets really desperate. And so what does he do? Something completely unconscionable. He decides that he's going to inseminate African women with the chimpanzee sperm without their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's trying to get forward with this as, as, uh, as much as possible. And he's found out. And, of course, everybody sort of rejects this plan, and he spirals out of his his uh, professional field, I guess you could say. Yeah, he starts hanging out with celebrated surgeon Sergei Voronov, who uh, at the time was uh, was really in fashion because he had a uh, quote-unquote rejuvenation therapy that he would perform, uh, in which he would graft slices of ape testes onto uh, those of rich and aging men uh, who were hoping to regain some of their former vigor. And let's just all pause there for a moment think about that. Yeah, it's, I mean, on one hand, uh, anyone who's ever uh, read uh, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is probably thinking of uh, The Adventure of the Creeping Man from 1923, which follows the, the same logic, the idea that you have somebody that's taking some sort of ape or monkey-related product, uh, but in this case it's changing him and making him crazy uh, or possibly changing him into a monster. It's one of the more sci-fi of the uh, mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes tales. It's important to keep in mind that, that Vornoff is not the only one doing this uh, in, in the 20s. This rejuvenation testes on your cheek therapy? Yes, yes. He became notorious for performing it in Algeria, but at the same time several U.S. surgeons were, were doing the same thing. There was Dr. Victor D. Lespinacis, a professor of uh, genitourinary surgery at Northwestern University. He was treating impotence with the use of uh, glandular extracts and then 
grafting slices of human cadaver testes uh, in, into the rectus muscles of infinite men. Mm. Which, but but again, this was, he was just human cadaver to, to human, so there wasn't anything fishy going on, um, you know. And, and certainly, we, we do a lot of today. We, a lot of uh, transplant of an organ is a cadaver to, to human oh, right, transplant. Right, right. So, so I don't want to scandalize that too much. But then you had this guy, Dr. Leo Stanley, who between uh, and this is another American between 1919 and 1922, he injected 656 prisoners at San Quentin Prison with uh, testes in an, an attempt to uh, slow or reverse aging. But uh, he used the, the uh, testicles of goats, rams, boars, deer. He essentially uh, pureed them, like I, I assume, in like a big smoothie blender. Mm-hmm. Um, pureed the testicles so that they, he could uh, put them in a, in a needle and inject them uh, under the skin of the abdomen. Subcutaneous testes is what yeah, I'm hearing. Testy, like Slurpee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, um, you know, there's not much you can really say about that. But he reported that that uh, that he had some success with it. But uh, I mean, ultimately, you have a situation where a dude is performing horrible human experimentation uh, in you know, within the, the walls of a prison. But back to Ivanov, all right. But, so, that, but I do think it's interesting that, to note that that was the environment that Ivanov was working in. So. Yeah, yeah, he's working in an environment where, and certainly, not everybody thought that Ivanov was great. There were there were some scientists that came to sort of investigate and poke around what he was doing because mm-hmm. even I mean, everyone not everyone was like, yeah, totally inject some people with ape stuff. That's a, that's a great idea. Now, some some people were concerned, but there was enough of it going around mm-hmm. that not as many eyebrows were raised. These were all hormonal approaches to treating impotence made prior to the discovery of t- t- testosterone before the emergence of uh, modern hormone uh, mm-hmm. uh, science. So uh, you cut him a little slack there, I guess. Yeah. As far as the uh, the mindset goes, not as much as some of the actual acts that were performed, because certainly the stuff that happened at San Quentin was uh, indefensible. Yeah, and, I mean, Ivanov sort of did get his uh, comeuppance, I guess you could say, for his ethical transgressions, right, uh, with trying to impregnate women with chimpanzee sperm without their knowledge, um, he was banished to Kazakhstan, right? Yeah, the French governor in uh, Guyana um, said, none of that, get out of here. Yeah, and then he tried to, he had plans to carry out more experiments in Russia. Uh, but it was a pain to try and ship all these uh, these animals back all the way from Africa. They're dying on the way. They're mm-hmm. dying once they get back. It's just a huge uh, zoological headache. And yet, indeed, he eventually is sent to uh, Kazakhstan. And uh, he re- he's released the next year, but he dies soon after. Which, I mean, on one hand, yeah, it's sad, but then also what, he was kind of off the rails at that point. Yeah. It, it seems like in any case that we've looked at, there there comes this moment where you look up, you're, a mad, you're essentially a mad scientist, but you, you look up and you realize that you would, you would think you would realize you've become a mad scientist. Like whether you're Ivanov and you look up and you realize, wow, I've lost all my funding and uh, I have notes here on how I'm going to um, secretly impregnate uh, a woman with chimp semen. Or you're someone like uh, like Lily, the dolphin guy, and you're living in a flooded apartment with dolphins and taking LSD in your isolation chamber. Yeah. You think you might realize, man, my funding was just cut, and I'm doing all this crazy stuff. Something maybe I'm not on the up and up anymore. Maybe I've become the bad guy. Yeah. Here. Well, was isn't there some sort of phrase about when you're living in the monkey house, you can't smell the poo? I have never heard that, but yeah. that, that sounds basically here. He was. Literally living in the monkey house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, well, maybe not literally, but but he was trying to keep a monkey house uh, in Russia and carry out these experiments. So then that, of course, leads us to the question, could it actually be done? And we will talk about that right after this message. 
All right, we're back. Uh, one more thing about Ivanov uh, bef- before we move on. There, uh, we mentioned that his whole thing was to prove Darman right, to stomp out religion, and that the uh, uh, the humanity would be the, the icon of this uh, of this victory. Uh, but there are also some theories that the uh, the aging Bolsheviks, in in particular, mm. were very interested in financing his research because they were aging men mm-hmm. in an age when there were some scientific minds that were that, that thought that you could slow or reverse aging uh, by injecting uh, things like uh, like uh, like pureed testes into the body. You know, they, they thought that this was if not if these techniques weren't working, they were at least leading to in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So there's there are some theories that state that while he uh, while Ivanov was definitely um, you know, go go Darwin. We're going to prove uh, religion wrong. Some of the Bolsheviks might be thinking, "Oh, let's give this guy some money. Maybe he'll hook me up with the sweet, sweet injections, and I can live uh, forever." Ah, okay. Yeah. So, so they had their own little hidden agenda. Maybe, possibly. maybe you know, right? It's but again, Ivanov, you know, not under the direction of Stalin to to raise this eight man army. Mm-hmm. So, could we do it? Could we? Could we? Well, this is kind of an open question, um, because it's. It's this was uh, this period we're talking about, like the, the 1920s, uh, you know, the early 20th century. This was the time to get funding for this experiment, <laughs> yeah. and and certainly uh, some people managed to get, uh, or at least one man managed to get some funding, and it didn't come to fruition. Mm-hmm. So, the environment uh, in the world today is certainly not such, in or certainly in most places, uh, thankfully, that this kind of thing is going to get greenlit. Yeah, that's right. Robin Bernstein, the assistant professor of anthropology at George Washington University, says that in a lab setting with a scientist, it's possible to fertilize an egg with genetic material from a chimp. But to your point, she says, who's going to fund it? Who's gonna, going to sanction it? Yeah, and you're going to have to, I mean, you know, let's let's not kid ourselves. As a scientist, I tend to be pretty bright people. But they are existing in a, uh, and they're also existing in a culture of, of their particular science. So you would have to have someone in a culture that, Advocated or tolerated uh, this type of experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there have been uh, people often point to the Second World War and uh, you know uh, experiments of uh, Joseph Mengele. You know, and they, and, you know, the horrible things that went on, on uh, there uh, under the Nazi regime because stuff because it was a situation where stuff was tolerated. You release a gas in and in, in a room, and it will eventually fill that volume of air. You know, you have to have the the space that will tolerate. A certain level of uh, unethical science, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or you know, outright evil, however you want to phrase it. So yeah, for for this kind of experiment to to come around again, for someone to actually make a go at it, you would you would have to have that environment, that uh, that that culture that tolerated this kind of uh, scientific experimentation among actual scientists. Well, and uh, even though you know the scientific community is largely pretty self-governing, there are people who are still worried about it. Uh, biotech activist Jeremy Rifkin said in a 2000 interview with The Guardian, chimps shared 98% of the human genome, and a fully mature chimp has the equivalent mental abilities and consciousness of a four-year-old human. Fusing human and chimpanzee embryo, which researchers say is feasible, this is him saying this, mm-hmm. could produce a creature so human that questions regarding its moral and legal status would throw 4,000 years of ethics into chaos. Would such a creature enjoy human rights? Would it have to pass some kind of humanness test to win its freedom? Would it be forced into doing menial labor or be used to perform dangerous activities? Well, it's interesting. I was reading some stuff by uh, Richard Dawkins, and he was making pretty much the same argument, that if we were... Uh, he was laying out some some various situations that could come about that would change the way we think about things. And he was arguing that if you... If you were able to create a successful hybridization of a human and a chimpanzee, this uh, this humanzy, 
um, you you would basically change everything. That it, like he, his his argument is kind of like Ivanov's mm-hmm. that if you had this creature, except he's not advocating the creation of it, but he's saying if uh, he's saying could it be done? Maybe, and if it were done, it would it would change the way we think. I don't. I don't we were talking about this earlier. I don't know if we actually agree with that. Right, right, because we, we were actually pointing to our podcast about um, the science of arguing and how uh, sometimes even when we have all the facts before us, sometimes, and mostly this is ego-driven usually, uh, we tend to ignore those facts and still go with whatever it is that we're rooting for, we're arguing against. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's possible that... Um, it wouldn't necessarily change our idea of how the world was made, how we came into being if we were to create this creature. Right. For like, some people it would, right? right? I mean, but someone who firmly believes in intelligent design, they're very much set in this mindset of this is the right way and the rest is just some sort of like liberal agenda. If said liberals were to, to roll out humanity, it's not like they would drop everything and be like, well, what have I been wasting my time with this whole uh, intelligent design stuff because there is the proof, the humanity. Right, right. They would say, no, that's just some weird monkey you found. Or any number of ideas that would just refute the, any any possibility that uh, this is what they said it was. Right. And, you know, just, just in case anybody's worried about um, this coming to fruition, uh, in 1997, Stuart Newman, a developmental biologist sponsored um, by, of course, the biotech activist Jeremy Rifkin, actually sought to preclude the creation of the humanity by attempting to patent the relevant te- technology so that they would be able to restrict its use and then promote an ethics debate, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the, on a worldwide platform. Because um, they felt like we just want to go ahead and bring this issue to the forefront because people really aren't thinking about it. Um, even though the patent was rejected, they felt like it was successful because now they had people talking about it. Yeah, they it. raised the uh, the question about it. They raised the people were discussing the the possibilities and the and the ethics of uh, creating said hybrid. Yeah, and so I mean, in in a sense, the government reacted the way it was supposed to, right? Because it, it's not really supposed to give a patent to anybody. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily know someone's agenda, right? Right. So they rejected this patent on the grounds that um, although the patent and trademark office. Um, has been permitted since a Supreme Court decision in 1980 to issue patents on living organisms. A major ground for the rejection was their claim to have no guidance from Congress as to how human an organism can be before it is not patentable by the 13th Amendment's prohibition of slavery. So, you know, there's, there's, it's still very much a um, gray area. And as Rifkin had brought up, you know, at what point are we human? What is humanness? What is... You know, what are we creating here? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible to create uh, this creature, but should we? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying yes. We should. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, that's all good stuff to think about. It also brings to mind an, another uh, tale from this, uh, this same sort of legacy I was discussing earlier with the Adventures of the Creeping Man and Island of Dr. Moreau. You had an H.P. Lovecraft story in 1920 uh, titled Facts Concerning the Late Author uh, German and His Family. Uh, which uh, is one that I I always liked uh, when when I was uh, you know reading uh, Lovecraft, but it's uh, it's ultimately uh, a it it sort of brings to mind some of Lovecraft's racial paranoia, which can at times be a little off putting. Uh, but what's amazing about this story is it's very much just set in this uh, post Darwinian world. So this story involves a, a man coming uh, a man who came back from uh, exploring in Africa. And it comes to light that while he was there, he fell in love with a, a white ape princess. Uh, you know, think uh, think the movie Congo, 
the, the, the crazy gray apes that had the big pitstone paddles that mm-hmm. they uh, bashed people with. Well, he find, this uh, individual finds out that his uh, uh, that a member of his family had, had gone to Africa, fallen in love, and that he was actually descended uh, partially from this uh, white ape uh, princess. So. Uh, I just find that a fascinating tale because it really it, it brings to mind a lot of the, the problems that would come to light if uh, if we had a, a humanity. The idea that it would really rock our boat and make us think long and hard about these differences between what it is to be human mm-hmm. and uh, and what it is to be this other, and if there is and how how firm that distinction really is. Uh, of course, in the Lovecraft story, it's just a little more uh, a little more horrific. Well, and to bring up Richard Dawkins, right, the selfish gene. He talks about how our genes are selfish. If all of a sudden you do have genetic material that is uh, created with a, a chimpanzee and you have that offspring, how do you feel toward that, right? Mm-hmm. Because that is part of you, right? Yeah. You're, do you, you have a completely different idea of, of what it is to be human, uh, to be sentient? All right, well, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, let's uh, have the robot bring over some mail, and we'll read a quick one. All right, this is from a listener by the name of Tony. Says, uh, Hi, Robert and Julie. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia. Enjoy, uh, really enjoy your podcast. I was listening to your bug diet episode today while on my way to meet some friends for lunch in our Chinatown district when I happened to pass a restaurant called Ant's Bistro. Uh, and that's spelled A-N-T. <laughs> I had to take a photo and send it to you guys. Uh, I'm yet to sample their signature dish, but it's a concept uh, you could catch on. Uh, here's the photo. Keep up the great work. So, uh, yeah, we asked people for examples of... Uh, Bug-related cuisine in uh, uh, in their own experiences, and uh, we had a few different people uh, write in, and that was uh, that was one of them. And let's see what else we have here. Oh, we heard from a listener by the name of Timothy. Uh, hi, Robert and Julie. Just wanted to weigh in on on the arguments episode. Robert had mentioned philosophy, and I wanted to stress how important it really is, and how sad it is that philosophy isn't taken more seriously in American society. Ego is like a colored lens; we may not even be aware we are wearing. The argument is a fantastic opportunity for someone else to point them out. Philosophy helps you learn to look for those errors yourself. I believe philosophy is a large part of why my girlfriend and I are able to turn our occasional argument into meaningful conversation. We are both willing to be wrong because we both find the rational solution we agree upon to be much preferable to a selfish win. Love the show. Uh, and for the record, Julie, the male ro- robot most definitely is not argumentative. Oh, Smiley you, face. Oh, you say that, but have you ever been stuck in the break room with Arnie? No. <laughs> well, it's he, pretty heated well, in there. He, he's in there to talk to the, uh, the robotic the coffee machine. machine. Yeah. Yeah, I think they have a thing going. Yeah. Well, all right, if you have something you want to share with us about a uh, past episode on bugs or arguing, or if you have some uh, some interesting stuff to share about uh, the, this uh, episode on humanities, do let us know. Uh, there were a number of... I had other things in the notes I didn't get around to, to mentioning, uh, so I'm sure uh, some of you guys have some cool uh, works of fiction to bring up, and I'd, uh, I'd love to... Uh, highlight them and or be exposed to them uh, for the first time uh, and if you want to find us you can find us uh, A on Facebook where we're uh, stuff to blow your mind you can find us B on Twitter uh, where we're blow the mind and uh, C where else can you find us you can find us at blow the mind at discovery and take note of that new email address please discovery.com Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.